1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. I don't know if any of you watched the Calcutta Cup rugby match. <laughs> the less said about that, the better. But slightly frustratingly, our passage is on that kind of topic. Or maybe you've been watching the Olympics. Our passage has Olympic language, rugby language, training language in it. Did you pick that up? Verse 7, end of verse 7, train yourself for godliness. And that, the word's gym, gymnase yourself. It's workout language. So even if sport isn't your thing, actually when it comes to this passage, we are all thinking about hard work. Extraordinary commitment that our elite athletes put in. And Paul's saying today that there's something more worthwhile than an Olympic medal, more worthwhile than the Calcutta Cup and all the rubbing, your face, uh, rubbing it in the face of English people you can do. Verse 7, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way for it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. Today in our sermon and in our small groups this week, we're going to be thinking about training for godliness as a church family. And it is something of immense value. But just before we dive in, I need to remind us who, Tim, who Paul is speaking to. I've given you a clue, it's Timothy. He's speaking to Timothy, who's a church leader. He's one of the elders at this church in Ephesus. And that's important because most basically, Paul is speaking to a Christian here. 
Now, we hope every Sunday morning there might be some amongst us who are just looking in on the Christian faith. And I need to tell you up front that if, if you hear this morning that the Christian message is basically train yourself for godliness, that's all wrong. That is not the, the, the start or the center of Christianity. Even this book, 1 Timothy, which is all about how we behave in the church of God, even this book began with Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the core of Christianity. It's not kind of train yourself for godliness. We're not doing a kind of spiritual park run together. You know, kind of psych ourselves up, get the kit on, get godly, and then maybe God will be pleased. That's not Christianity at all. That's back to front. But for Christians, there is an encouragement. Those who've admitted, I'm, I'm not in God's good books, and I never could be, however hard I tried. I need Jesus. Once we've done that, there is a call to live out our new identity as God's family, as followers of Jesus. And that will involve training, training in godliness. So first off, Paul's speaking to a Christian, not someone thinking of beginning the Christian life. But secondly, he's also speaking to a Christian leader. So Timothy is an elder uh, at Ephesus, which just means the primary application for this morning's passage is to Robin who unfortunately is not here, he's speaking a weekend away, or to the eldership team, I hope lots of them are here, Um, or to our small group leaders who do a little bit of that work, or to our children's and youth leaders um, who share some of this work that we'll see Timothy is to do. So maybe it's only them who have to do the kind of spiritual equivalent of watching their diet and getting up at 6am for those runs in the dark. Maybe the rest of us can just watch them, kind of kick back, sit on the sofa, buttery popcorn, and just see them do the godliness training. Well, actually, there's some truth in that. There's some truth in that there is a, there's more responsibility placed on those who are in authority and, and teaching leading positions in a church. This is more primarily directed to us. And I'll keep drawing applications, therefore, for our leaders, small group leaders, elders. But actually, when you look at what Timothy and and those of us in leadership need to do, we are to set an example to the rest of the church family. Look at verse 12, for example. Chapter 4, verse 12. We're on page 992 if you've closed your Bible. Chapter 4, verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Timothy is to be an example to the whole church. And then verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So actually the church is to be watching Timothy's progress in godliness as an example to everyone, as a model of what we're all to be growing in. And I think we've seen that already through through 1 Timothy. So why in chapter 3 did the elders need to be godly? kind of have visible signs of godliness in their life, well, because we're all watching them as examples of the Christian life. And we've seen all the way through 1 Timothy, think of chapter 2, that actually the the quest to, to grow in godliness is not just something for leaders. It's for all men, for all women. Later on, it will be for all slaves or masters. It will be for, for widows. Um, the whole church family is to grow in godliness. Of course we are. We're God's household. 
we're as a group trying to hold up God's truth in the communities we're part of. So of course we're all to grow in godliness, but some of us are player coaches. We're teaching and modeling it. And if you're charging down a bob's, bobsleigh run, the one who's at the front steering things and coaching the rest about what direction to go in, well, that's the one that can cause the most damage. I'm the one that can drive the bobsleigh off the mountain into disaster. That's why it really matters that our leaders take this passage seriously. And actually, disaster is where the passage begins. I don't know if you picked that up. Verses 1 to 5. Verses 1 to 5, which I've titled, there's a, an outline on the back, I've titled, Beware False Godliness. Beware, beware Fake Godliness, from verses 1 to 5. And Paul's language here is pretty strong. I mean, I've, I've written that point A, it's possible for churchgoers to become devoted to demonic godliness. Someone looking at my outline said to me in the week, demonic, really? <laughs> like, are you sure you want to put that down? But actually, verse 1, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Paul's saying that the Holy Spirit has warned in the last days, some will depart from the faith, that is, some within the church, maybe even within Timothy's congregation right now, will be taken in by demonic teaching. It's a really strong way to put it. I think we need to realize if people got taken in by this, it must have been plausible. It must have looked good, looked all right. Sounds kind of a bit apocalyptic, doesn't it, that description, deceitful spirits, teachings of demons. It sounds like a kind of Ouija board party or or kind of a black magic seance has gone on in the church. But actually, I mean, you never find that in Morningside, we might think, but actually... This stuff is deceitful, verse 1, and it comes, verse 2, through human beings. Verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's a human mouthpiece passing on these demonic lies. And again, that might sound kind of apocalyptic, like these people would have had horns growing out their heads if they stood up and spoke. But actually... It says that their consciences are seared. That means they've just become numb to what God's word actually says. Which means they may not have realized they were doing the work of demons. I mean, that's a warning to someone like me or Robin. Especially those of us who have the responsibility of regular preaching here. If I don't listen to my conscience, if, if I teach the Bible but I don't listen to the Bible myself... Over time, that's a really dangerous path because over time, my conscience will be seared. It will become numb. It will lose sensitivity. And soon enough, I will be teaching things to justify my own lifestyle. Subtly distorting God's word, skewing God's truth into lies. But if you met them, I'm sure these preachers, these Bible study leaders in Timothy's church would have been really winsome. They would have been warm, persuasive, powerful speakers. The only reason false teaching is, is dangerous is because it's attractive or it comes through someone who's attractive. So here are leaders who, who seem serious about godliness and spirituality. 
and they were encouraging others to be devoted like them. And verse 3 tells us what their brand of spirituality was. It was a form of asceticism. That is, they were forbidding things. Here, forbidding marriage, verse 3, and certain foods. Now, I think the food thing is probably connected with the Jewish law-keeping in chapter 1 that we heard back then. So, if you want to be in God's favor, you must eat kosher. Or, if you want to be holy, you must be single. Priests must not get married. The holy life is the life of a nun or a life of a monk. Now, we need to actually be quite careful here as we think about application, because... In 1 Corinthians 7, which I preached on last term, Paul does say that singleness has advantages for the gospel. He chose to be single um, because it gave opportunities for the gospel. And in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says sometimes he didn't eat certain foods so that he could get alongside people to tell them about Jesus. He even obeyed the Jewish diet sometimes. So actually... So it's fine to deliberately give up things so that we can reach out with the gospel. There's nothing wrong with praying with fasting, for example. But these false teachers were forbidding these things. They were saying real godliness, proper, serious spirituality must, avoid, must involve denial of these kind of worldly things like marriage or food. You cannot be a really keen Christian if you're married and have kids. What a cop-out. You cannot be a real Christian if you eat bacon. You cannot be a real Christian if you have a car. Certainly not two cars. It's that kind of thing. The more you remove yourself from the things of this world, the more holy and pleasing to God you are. And Paul sees that and says, that's demonic. It's demonic. It's demonic because it runs contrary to God. Contrary to his character, to his purposes, to his word. God is a good creator, generous. So verse 3, they ban foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Verse 4, everything God created, sorry, everything created by God is good. Nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. I wonder if this ascetic mindset feels quite a long distance from us at Chalmers. I was saying that in a Bible study on this last week when someone said, actually, I I think some of these things could be plausible around here. Keen Christians wouldn't eat meat. Keen Christians don't need proper sleep or rest. Keen Christians don't need a night in with their spouse. Keen Christians should never touch alcohol. Now, there may be particular reasons why it's wise uh, in your context not to touch alcohol, But once we start forbidding things which God says are perfectly good, part of his creation, well, Paul says, beware false spirituality, a kind of demonic godliness that tricks us into devoting ourselves to a load of effort in an area where God says, actually, that's good. It's really struck me, this passage. It is possible to be keenly, sincerely, energetically, devotedly wrong when it comes to godliness. And actually, if you look across church history or global church practice, actually, it does show the Spirit was right to say in the last days there'll be a lot of this. 
It's so easy for us leaders to start to teach a form of spirituality or a form of religion that takes a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of energy, but has as much to do with real godliness as demons do. That's a sobering thought, but I wonder, after quite a strong message, I wonder if at this point a, a, mess, a question is starting to emerge in our minds, which is, well, how do we avoid falling into that trap? If churchgoers can be led astray by it, and of course we at Chalmers are just as vulnerable, just as sinful as the church which Timothy and the Apostle Paul was involved in starting, well, what's to protect us? And actually, I'm asking that question for me personally. I'm a sinful man. I'm sure Timothy thought this too. What's to protect me taking this pulpit off the rails and the church with it? How do we avoid leading people astray? Well, verses 6 to 16 are going to be a big answer to that. But just before we get there, verse 4 starts to give us an answer. Verse 4, everything created by God is good. Nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So actually, we protect against asceticism by thanksgiving, being thankful to God for good gifts he's made. There's another part to the answer, which we'll get to in verse 5. But this first part, I think, is a good thing to think through in our small groups. Um, do we actually thank God for everything? Not just what goes on inside church, but everything. There's a lie in our culture that um, the secular world is not really to do with God, and it's just what goes on in here that he's, he's kind of in charge of. But actually, he created food and music and alcohol and art and friendship and money and sleep and sport and government and education and work and rest and sex. It's all God's idea, all part of his creation. And we'll protect ourselves if we give thanks for those things. But hang on, hang on, hang on. Surely not all use of alcohol or sex or art or money is good. I mean, we can't take that literally, that nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. I mean, last term we taught that in, from Genesis that the context for sex is within marriage between one man and one woman. So surely if I want to sleep around or I want to get wasted or I want to spend all my money just on my own comfort, surely you can't be saying that's okay as long as I say kind of thank you, God, at the start of it. I guess instinctively lots of us would say, well, no, that can't be right. But why is it not right? Because you could find a preacher who would say that's okay. How do you work out what godliness actually is? That's the real question. How do you work it out? How do you avoid the fakes, fake godliness? How do we know what the right use of any part of God's creation, anything God's made, actually is? Well, wonderfully, God doesn't leave us guessing. This is why verse 5 is important as well. Here's the answer to what makes for a holy use of something in creation. Verse 5, for it's made holy by the word of God and by prayer. So it's not just prayer. Thank you, Father, that you created drugs in this world. It's not just that. It's the word of God which tells us what a good use of that creation is, i.e. our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So use drugs medicinally. Don't use them to abuse your body. The word of God is what tells the difference. It's thanksgiving and truth, prayer and word of God. So very simply, the only way to weigh up if something we're hearing at church or in books or online, the only way to weigh up whether it's real godliness 
or demonic spirituality is to check it against Scripture, God's Word. That is the way. And that's the way because Scripture tells us about the Lord Jesus. Remember chapter 3, verse 16? Emma reminded us earlier. Jesus is where the mystery of godliness is revealed. Look at Jesus and you see real godliness. And all the Scriptures are preparing us um, to know and love Jesus. And when you look at Jesus, real godliness is surprising. See, Jesus didn't come with asceticism to either wow the crowds or to impress God. Kind of look at how much I give up. Look at how disconnected from the world I am. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Christ Jesus entered the world to save sinners. That was at the heart of real godliness. And we hope and pray is increasingly at the heart of our church family. In fact, part of what's so demonic about some of this teaching is it distracts from what we're really about. A church can be a hothouse of kind of focus on things that aren't actually at the center of God's heart. Verse 10, God is the saviour. He loves to save. He longs to save. And we're to reflect that kind of godliness. So then very briefly, a quick word on Lent. We're in the time of Lent. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. Um, am I saying you should never do anything with Lent? Kind of avoid it. Demonic. Um, it totally depends what you're doing and why you're doing it. Totally depends. So if someone comes along and says, you must observe Lent, you must give something up, that's what we do as a church. It's the right thing, it's the holy thing, it's the thing that takes Easter seriously. I think that's getting dangerously close to forbidding good things God's made. If someone comes along and says, we and our family are giving up chocolate, because to be honest, we eat too much, <laughs> and we want to discipline ourselves, we want to train ourselves for godliness, well, that's a perfectly good thing. Repentance from gluttony is a really good thing, and there are all sorts of things we might give up because they've become idolatrous or a teetering in that direction. That's a good thing. Likewise, it's a really good thing if, if someone says, Do you know, I've done a quick audit of my time and energy or money or whatever, and I'm spending so much over here on something that's good, but not as good as loving people around me. Or maybe chapter 2 challenged you as it did me that we're to be praying for all kinds of people. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. God loves that. He desires all people to be saved. And do you know what I thought? I thought, I don't have time for this. I'm so busy to add anything more on prayer. And then I, then I thought, how many, if you added it up, first thing I do when I wake up, I turn my phone on and I will check a few apps. News, often sport, and then a second news program, a news app. I thought to myself, if you added all those minutes together and compared them with my prayer minutes, what would, be, what would be the ratio? I don't know, 1 to 20 in the wrong direction? So maybe for Lent, you think, we'll give up or we'll, we'll delete that app for the next 40 days, next month, with the purpose not to impress God, because the more we give up, the more happy he is. Not at all. Not at all. They're good things. But because that would buy some time to do something that really pleases God, praying for those around us who don't know him. That's just one example. I'm not saying you have to do that to be godly, but that is a, an example of the kind of real godliness, the real um, reflection of Jesus and his Father. You can ask me next week whether I've, how long I've spent on the news programs and how long I've prayed. 
Okay, let me sum up. That was point one. Beware false godliness. Because it's possible for churchgoers to become devoted to demonic godliness. Shocking, really, but there's a spirituality that looks good, sounds impressive, takes a lot of time and energy, but is actually dangerous. Lies. And the way to avoid that and to stick with the real article is real godliness is shaped by the word of God and thankful prayer. It'd be great to talk through some of the nitty-gritty of that in our small groups. But time to turn to point two. Um, And really, this is continuing where we've been, um, continuing this thought of how do we train positively with real godliness? How can Timothy do that? Well, let's head back to verses seven and eight, the heart of this section. Verse seven, Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. I wonder how you felt about the idea of deleting an app from your smartphone I just mentioned and and spending more time praying. Sounds like pretty hard work. I once lived with Oh, no, went on a holiday with someone who was training for a quite serious rugby team, and he ate four to eight cans of tuna a day, just straight out the can. Horrendous. And that was, and that was so he could do all the other really painful things. He was training hard because he thought it was worth it, um, the team he'd get in, the chance to win things. Paul's using that kind of language, train yourself, gymnase yourself, work hard, because it's so worth it. The thing on offer is so worth it, verse 8. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. If you went out around Holyrood Park and asked all those people jogging around the loop in the freezing cold uphill, why are you bothering? I guess they'd have all sorts of reasons why it's worth it putting in that effort training. And Paul actually agrees with that. Paul's not an ascetic. Verse 8, bodily training is of some value. In, verse, in chapter 5, he's going to give Timothy some medical advice involving alcohol. Paul believes in bodily training, the benefits. And there are loads of benefits, aren't there? It helps us stay healthy, live longer, have more energy, think clearer and better, breathe better, lift our mood. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why keeping fit makes an awful lot of sense for ourselves and for those around us. But while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So getting fit is valuable. Getting godly is more so. I wonder if we realize that. We live in a culture where fitness is massively encouraged and godliness is laughed at. So we might need some reflection on why is godliness so good Why is it of benefit? I've been reflecting on that. Here are some suggestions, but it would be great to talk further about it. Well, let's start with now. How is godliness of benefit right now? And remember, chapter 3, verse 16, the mystery of godliness has been revealed by Jesus. So you could rephrase the question, what are the benefits of being like Jesus, more like Jesus? What are the benefits of being Christ-like? What are the benefits to me 
What are the benefits to my friends and my family? What are the benefits to my colleagues if I live more like Jesus? What are the benefits to my neighbors if I'm more like Jesus? What are the actual benefits? Why is it worth it? If you want to get specific, chapter 3, do you remember the first half of chapter 3 was describing godly characteristics that we should have in our elders or deacons? Uh, So you can look through those specifics and think, what difference does it make? What are the benefits if someone's like this? Um, So, so for example, chapter 3, verses um, 2 to 4, 2 to 5, sorry. If someone's self-controlled, so not a lover of money, not an alcoholic, what benefit is that for their life? It's actually huge. If someone's not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, what are the benefits for their friends or their family? If I'm hospitable, what would be the benefits for the church family or the, my neighbours? At work, if I'm not a slanderer, what would be the benefits for my colleagues? Jesus Christ was just a blessing to be around. Godliness, it was good for him and it was good for everyone around him. Godly people are a blessing to be around. One of the best bits of marriage advice, if you're thinking, who should I marry? One of the best bits of advice I heard was, um, try and find the godliest person who is willing to marry you. (laughs) Now, there's some other things we might say, like, it's good if you can get on and um, you will need to sleep together and things like that. But actually, that's true. If you're going to live with someone up close and personal for the rest of your life, godliness is the thing that would make the most difference. If marriage is really hard at the moment for anyone here, and, and there are always some marriages kind of on the rocks at any one moment, godliness is the thing that would help. Training yourself, praying in godliness, praying for the other person and their godliness. makes a massive difference. It's of value now. And godliness is of eternal value. Just look down at verses 15 and 16 for Timothy. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Growing in godliness is good for Timothy and his eternal security, and it's good for the eternal future of those around him. Now again, this is particularly true for a Bible teacher or a church leader, because if my life goes wonky then my teaching will follow. And soon enough, I'll be leading the church astray. Just like the conscience-seared liars that we thought about in um, chapter 4, verse 3. So so it is primarily for, for Timothy. But again and again, do you remember, we've been told in 1 Timothy that part of our job as the whole household of God is to hold up God's truth, to be pillars displaying God's truth to the world around us. So actually, all of us can adorn the truth or undermine it, bring it into disrepute. I think I could persuade us of that with one word. Oxfam. Oxfam has a message. It stands for values. They are good values. But some people within the organization can change the entire reputation. It's especially the leaders but it involves all of us. How people think of Jesus will be affected by how they think of us as a church. 
But actually, this isn't a beat-up passage. It's a, it's a look, look how, um, how beneficial this could be. It's a kind of, it's not interesting. Verse 16 doesn't say, uh, be warned, you could send people off the rails, like I've been preaching. Actually, it says, this is awesome. You could be involved in salvation in people's lives. It's a wonderful thing that our lives could adorn God's gospel. We'll see in chapter 6, verse 1, that the way we treat our bosses will affect how God's viewed. So let, um, let these uh, bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. All that hard work and uh, hard obedience that 1 Timothy is calling us to as a church family it isn't just kind of grit your teeth and bear it because God likes us to, to deny good things and suffer. <laughs> Not at all. This is God's plan for how we can adorn his gospel, be attractive in our society. So godliness is of value, more valuable than training to be fit. Which just leaves us one final question before I close, which is how do you actually train in godliness? I'm hoping you might want to by this point, if you're still with me. I know it's warm, but unusually, we're used to the kind of freezing cold chumps. <laughs> Lovely and warm. Uh, uh, we've thought we don't want to go down the line of false godliness. We don't want to put effort into all the wrong things. Godly, real godliness is of so much value. Of course I want that. It's good for me. It's good for everyone else. Eternally good, as well as good now. Well, then how do we grow in that? How do we grow in it? And the answer is, again, God's truth. Points 2b and 1b are basically the same. It's God's truth that can help us be trained in godliness. God's word. So just look at how Timothy can be trained. Verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. Timothy is to be trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. So the gospel that's taught all the way through the Bible um, is what trains us for godliness, what trains Timothy, unlike the silly myths of verse 7. And then verse 13, that's why Timothy's to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching. And it's why in verse 16 he should watch both his life and his teaching, both because God's truth trains us in godliness. There's a connection. Which is kind of obvious, isn't it? If we want to live God's way, we do actually need to listen to God. <laughs> you sometimes hear people saying, well, I really love Jesus, but I don't particularly love the Bible. Not so keen on that. I mean, that, just think if I said that about Jessie, my wife. I really love Jessie. I, I want to honor her. I want to live, live kind of the way she'd like me to. I don't listen to her. No, what she says, no, I'm not interested in that. But I love her. Love her, not the words. Come on. <laughs> of course, we need to listen to Scripture. That's where the mystery of godliness is revealed in the Lord Jesus. And it's why I'm so glad that our small groups are focused around a Bible study. We want community. We want holiness. We want more prayerfulness. We want love for the lost. But the thing that actually trains us in all those is Scripture being taught and listened to. That's why it's good that the highlight of our Sunday meetings is Scripture being read and preached upon. It's why it's good that you encourage Robin or me or Sam or others 
to take seriously our preparation time for Sunday sermons. There's always a million things we could be doing, a million things we'd like to be doing, but the single biggest thing we can do to pastor and shepherd the church towards godliness is be serious about our commitment to public preaching and teaching. And as Chalmers grows, we hope numerically, we trust um, in maturity as well, we'll need to keep protecting that. So we think about planting and everything else. It's a team effort to keep the elders and church uh, Bible teachers focused on, devoted to, the most important thing. So feel very free to ask us, have you spent enough time praying and preparing to preach this week? Ask us that. And the second question could be, is there anything we can do to help you if we come back with, actually it was a real struggle this week. But of course it's not just protecting the kind of time to think about the Bible, it's actually for Timothy watching his life. And this is where I started in the challenge to us um, elders, small group leaders, uh, youth teachers, children's teachers. We can't just talk the talk, we've got to walk the walk. I mean, it's a deep challenge, isn't it? Every Bible teacher, anyone involved in Bible teaching here will know that we battle sin all the time. Our hearts and our lives and our words, they're full of contradictions. Behavior that's not fully Christ-like. Which is why verse 15 is such an encouragement to me. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. So we're not supposed to be walking perfection. We're supposed to be walking progress. And actually, I have to say, since I've arrived, I'm hugely encouraged, both by how hungry our leaders are to get sharper on understanding and teaching Scripture, and how serious we are as a church family and a leadership team about godliness. It's a wonderful thing. I actually think the area we most, might be most weak is showing our weakness, showing the, the areas where we're not yet quite there, such that people can see progress. It's a good thing to be reflecting on in our small groups. Do we as a small group show each other the rough and the smooth, the struggles and the joys? Time for me to conclude. Beware false godliness. And the way to avoid it or recognize it is the word of God and thankful prayer. And train for real godliness. Why do we do that? Because it's the most valuable thing on earth both now and eternally. How do we do that? Well, taking Bible teaching really seriously as a whole church family and uh, those of us involved in Bible teaching, modeling it in our lives as well as prioritizing it in our teaching. And the more we do that, the more we'll see that godliness is actually quite surprising. Real spirituality is not a retreat from the world. Real holiness is not kind of the hardest life imaginable, away from all the filthy people kind of holiness. No. Real holiness, like the Lord Jesus, is going out to the lost, loving them, praying for them, sharing Jesus with them. It's why it's a wonderful thing that we're actually doing passion for life in Lent. What a great combination. Real engagement with our community is hopefully what we'll grow in. Let me leave this in prayer.
Father in heaven, it's an extraordinary thing that you would use a church full of sinners to hold up your truth. Because we know we are sinners. We admit that we are far from the Lord Jesus in how we think and act and live. Thank you so much that the Lord Jesus came into the world to save sinners like us. And we pray that he would be at work in this church family to grow us more and more into his likeness. Thank you that your word does that. And we pray that as a church family in small groups on Sundays, we would be those who train in godliness by listening to you and doing what you say and trusting you. In Jesus' name, amen.